Well, hey everyone, and welcome back. Welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. I hope you're keeping well. If you're a new listener, welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. Over the past 12 months, we've been putting out conversations on a wide range of topics and themes, catching up with some fascinating people. The entire past year of conversations are available to listen to on Amazon, Google, Spotify, iTunes, and of course on our website, which you can find on www.newgroundchurches.org forward slash podcast, where you'll also find videos to those conversations as well. If you enjoy the episodes, please don't forget to hit the like or subscribe button to be kept up to date and get automatic downloads turned on each time a new episode is released. And if you're on iTunes, do please give us a review to let us and others know what you think of the podcast to date. Uh, We've got some exciting conversations coming up over the coming months, which I'm thrilled about. Uh, We're also still looking for potential guests for this series. So if you or if you think someone you know might be a good person to get onto the podcast or a topic to cover, do please drop us an email on podcast at newgroundchurches.org. Well, now for today's episode, I spoke to Isaac Borquay, better known as Governor B. We spoke about grief toxic masculinity, youth violence, racism, the church, and a whole range of other things too. Also, as a treat, Isaac has given us permission to use some of his music in the show, which is great. I hope you enjoy that. There's also, you'll find links to Isaac's latest book in the description and the show notes to today's episode, which I would thoroughly recommend. The book is called Unspoken, with the subtitle being Toxic Masculinity and How I Face the Man Within the Man. He's a really engaging, funny, and honest writer. I I know you'd enjoy it. Go grab that book. Again, links in the description to today's episode. Well, that's everything for now. I'm going to hand over to my conversation with Isaac. Enjoy it, and I look forward to hearing from you all soon. Stay well. God bless. Today, I am really excited to be joined by double MOBO award-winning rapper, author, activist, broadcaster with the BBC, regular appearer on Sky Sports, husband to Emma, father to Ezra, and Christian, Isaac Borquay, better known as Governor B. Uh, His book, Unspoken, Toxic Masculinity and How I Face the Man Within the Man, uh, was out earlier this year. And that's a remarkable list of accomplishments, Isaac. <laughs> yeah, no, um, definitely makes me feel quite old. Um, but I think when you're when you're doing it and it's just work, you don't really think of accomplishments. You're just trying to, you know, do the best you can every day. But I'm grateful that you know God's had me doing this for a while and stayed faithful. Yeah, and been doing it for a while. I, think I mentioned before we started recording that you. Um, I remember seeing you at New Day all those years ago. How how long ago was that doing Kingdom Skank? about 10 years ago I think my first new day might have been 2011 um Kingdom Scan came out about 2008 or 2009 so yeah man it's, it's been a while um hopefully you still remember the moves because I don't <laughs> yeah I do remember them but I, you know as, as we said we're not recording videos today so I won't be uh won't be having to bust out the Kingdom Scan um, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, t- I mean it's easy to just kind of throw that out there isn't it you've been doing it for 10 years and um, for people like me who who see the content that you put out, you just kind of pop up every so often, every couple of years or so, with new songs or or new books. Um, but for yourself, is it's been a lot that's gone on in the past ten years, um, mm. and I, I'm really excited to be able to talk about that and how some of 
just stuff that's gone on in your life has helped shape you and particularly as we talk about the contents of this book by the way this book unspoken everybody should read this book get this book it's remarkable um you have such a, an ability to not just write but to write honestly as though there's no kind of um there's no pretense in what you're saying it feels very raw and open so thank you so much for i guess your your courage really in putting that together um but um, before we kind of come on to a lot of the contents of that, why don't we just kick things off with you um, perhaps sharing for us something that you've learned either about yourself or leadership in the past six months? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for myself, I've learned that if I take a break or if I say no to things when I'm overworked or don't feel like... Um, I've got the go ahead from God, then it's it's fine. Like, you know, my life's not going to burn to the ground because I think in the last year, 18 months, I've been forced to take a break and I've realised that actually everything's okay. Like, it's okay to just take time out and, and spend it with the family. It's okay not to be doing everything and, and anything. And when you slow down, there's actually a lot of beauty that you can capture in life. Um, so, yeah. Just it's fine to slow down, and hopefully, when things do pick up again and life gets back to whatever the new normal will look like, I'll be reminded that yeah, I don't need to be super busy twenty four seven, but I can relax and things mm. will. Be okay. I imagine that's quite a, a a hard challenge because, or a kind of a, a a balancing act to strike. As a creative, I guess you you need to be in a kind of creative space which requires you perhaps to not be rushed off your feet and super busy but I also know you know some of the things that you're really passionate about as an activist particularly working with young men um, and your concern for youth violence um, you kind of got this dual edge of I've got to be busy I've got to be you know there's things in the world that need to change we've got to we've got to save people versus wait I'm a I'm an artist so I, I need to get that balance right to take time to just switch off or to pause or to be refreshed what are some of the the key ways that you get refreshed either in god or just you know like you say keep a good balance on your life do you have practical things in place yeah that's a good question i think you know early on in terms of creativity i was just churning out like concepts and consistently inspired and writing lyrics every day and ideas and that kind of stuff don't know whether it's a sign of me getting older but in in recent years i found that quite hard to do that and so I've had to take myself away to you know secluded places by myself to just really pray uh, be still be silent um, read a newspaper and read a bible I love that quote about you know but have a, a newspaper in one hand and a bible in the other um, and just really seeing what's on God's heart and, and what's breaking my heart at the moment and just yeah as I say just pausing and taking time out um, so, yeah, what I do now uh, to connect and, you know, search within and, and see how I can help society and my environment is very different to, to what I used to do, you know. Um, I feel like now, even though maybe I get inspired less, I think that when I am inspired, it just feels really substantial and, and important and the right thing to be doing. Whereas before, maybe... I did more than I had to do, do you know what I mean? Just to try and stay relevant and keep my name out there and stuff like that. But yeah, now I'm at the stage of it's about legacy and it's not about like my name, but it's about, you know, if the content is important and helpful, then go for it. But yeah, it's my story, I think. 
I think Jesus modeled it as well, man. Just like occasionally he'd just go away by himself. Do you know what I mean? Um, and recharge and refuel. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in what you you mentioned there in the book, you talk about particularly in the early stages of um, your career having this kind of strong sense of what you call imposter syndrome that you almost you're worried that you're going to get found out that you're not as talented or as good at this as you might feel or you don't really belong here um and also you talk about a kind of a a change in the tone of your music because of some of the the events of the last year uh which uh like i said we'll talk about but um this concept of imposter syndrome i think a lot of people can relate to um can you help us understand that and also how you how you learned to manage that or realise that perhaps you're not an imposter. Maybe you are successful. Maybe does it take awards for you to not feel like an imposter or is it something deeper than that? I think it's definitely something deeper. Um, You know, for me, essentially, I would describe it as the feeling of I don't belong here or I'm unqualified or underqualified or comparing myself to peers and thinking, oh, they're doing a lot better than me and stuff like that. And it makes me feel really inadequate um that's what I would describe as my personal imposter syndrome um and I don't think awards can can solve that because there's always someone that's going to have more awards than you or or more record sales than you or be on tv a lot more or know their bible a lot more or be seemingly a a better christian um so there's always going to be that that stuff and I think you know solving it comes from just that real sense that god has created you perfectly knows your strengths knows your weaknesses and the validation doesn't come from anywhere else other than in jesus and i think if you get to a point where you're completely comfortable with that it almost doesn't matter what room you walk into or who else is in that room because you know that you're validated by jesus but i don't think that's a destination well, for me anyway, it's not a destination that I ever land at. I think it's a renewing my mind kind of thing. And every day I have to remind myself of that. Um, just because from a young age, I've been in so many different circles and never really felt at home. So, you know, I grew up on a council estate in East London, was working class. Then my parents moved to Essex, um, did really well for themselves. I was around loads of white people in, in secondary school, felt a bit different. And then I grew up in a Pentecostal church, but the music took me to like um, the white majority church and I was in all these festivals and that kind of stuff. And it's like, in a way you feel comfortable everywhere because you know, you just love people, but then you never really feel like you completely belong anywhere. And I think that's where it Mm. started for me. Mm. Is that, is that where some of the, the, the concept of everywhere and nowhere, your latest album comes from? Yeah, man, it does. Um, It's layered. I think it's um, in relation to work as well and family and you know the fact that yeah I've got a wife and a child who I love very much but you know how do you be a good husband how do you be a good father that's challenging for me and I still feel like I ain't got a clue so you've got all this stuff but at the same time it's like you've got nothing because you don't know how to handle it and the same applies to work the same applies to imposter syndrome yeah I'm just constantly yeah everywhere and nowhere and then the idea of God being omnipresent but then silent sometimes times in times of like grief and, and difficulties and that kind of stuff it's yeah it's very new layered but that's the general theme of my life for the last couple of years wow uh well let's uh you mentioned you touched on it then the the uh with the word grief you've um been through a lot over the last few years um in suffering grief uh in the loss of your dear dad 
but then also with the loss of a couple of close friends in Daisy and Franklin. Um, and actually, as you were, as I was reading it in the book, you you had this remarkable encounter with death, even as a youngster when you were at school, uh, with your friend Izzy dying in a lightning strike when you were aged twelve or thirteen. So. Um, you've you've suffered a lot and ca- carrying some heavy burdens recently, eh? Yeah, man. So the, Izzy was um, he was he was dead, but came back to life miraculously, and that was one of the oh wow um, things in life that I guess sparked my faith or cemented my faith. So we were in a playground at school playing football, pouring down with rain, and a lightning bolt struck the middle of the playground and um, and hit him went through his body. And he had to be taken to intensive care and was on a uh, machine for about a month. And just before that is when I decided to take my faith seriously, even though I had grown up in a Christian family and I was praying loads and felt like God was completely silent. Um, But yeah, long and short of the story is, you know, he made a full recovery and I truly believe that, you know, God played a part in his healing and that really kind of cemented my faith at that age. And for me, that was a happy ending, but, it's not always been a happy ending. Like you say, I've lost my, my dad, I've lost Daisy and, and Franklin, a couple of friends on the estate that I grew up on, lost their lives to youth violence. And so it's really hard straddling the fact that I know God is God when there's a happy ending, but do I believe he's still God when there's not a happy ending? And is there still a future and a hope and a trust that I can have in him? And I think that grief frozen all those kind of questions but the church culture that I grew up in didn't really allow room for questioning um and so it wasn't until I was a bit older and I lost my dad that I was reading through some of the psalms and David in particular is just angry and saying stuff like god where are you and why have you forsaken me and um it feels like my enemies are beating me up and that kind of stuff and it just gave me a new perspective that okay I I'm not going to have a perfect life or this perfect relationship with God, but I can have a really honest and authentic one. And if David's asking all these questions, then I feel like I've got permission to as well. And so, yeah, a lot of unlearning took place. And I feel like right now um, I have a more authentic relationship with God and and have a more healthier process in dealing with my grief. Mm. Yes, it's a... I guess it's a sad and strange fact that often our churches and some, certainly the church cultures don't seem to reflect the the culture and the things that you read like in the Psalms when it comes to the full spectrum and full range of human life that it seems that maybe, I don't know if it's new, but maybe it is in the West, we're not particularly, our churches aren't particularly um, capable of um, teaching people very well to handle the the pains of life we seem to even if we don't preach it we seem to have imbibed a kind of life it should be all about prosperity and success um why what are some of your i mean you've been in several different churches i guess what are some of your observations of the church generally if you can do that or um Mm. uh, what do you think some of the obstacles are that churches face to trying to create these honest environments that can handle um pain and suffering yeah I mean, I don't want to be too hard on the church because at the end of the day, we're, we're humans. I mean, we have an amazing hope, you know, and, and strength through Jesus. Uh, what was I watching yesterday? Emma's got me watching this, um, this show on Apple TV. They had a sick quote in it. It's, um, it's called The Morning Show. 
And the quote was something like, I'm probably going to butcher it. So the human condition is surprisingly universal and universally disappointing. Um, and I thought that was really, really powerful. And I think the church is made up of humans and we don't like being uncomfortable. Grief is something that's very uncomfortable. Um, and I think the added nuance in regards to the church is that we have Jesus and he's the savior of the world and our deliverer. So that means everything has to be all okay and all right and great 24 seven, which isn't the reality of life. And so we're not great at sitting in the uncomfortableness and doing life with people in that zone. We want to rush to, you know, deliverance and we want to rush to faith and we want to rush to um, being overcomers. But actually, I think the church, we could keep the tissues out for a little longer because Jesus is still in that, you know. Um, and yeah, I just think it's, it's super un uncomfortable. I remember... You know, when at, at New Day and um, like festivals and, and these youth stuff, you'd always hear testimonies and they'll be like, I was struggling with this, like grief or addiction or um, whatever it was. Then Jesus helped me and now I'm fine. But you never really heard people say, I'm still struggling with this. Do you know what I mean? What do we do in this moment here together as a community? And yeah, I just feel like we could sit in that middle space um, in an optimistic way and a faithful way, but we can we can stay there for a bit longer. Mm. Yeah, a bit like you did when you, you commented on imposter syndrome. Like, yeah, I was, again, it's really refreshing and encouraging when you hear someone just say, yeah, it's not as hard as it was sometimes, but sometimes it is still really challenging. And I think as Christians, we're those who we know we know the source of life so we know where to drink from but we often live in a world we live in a world that's causing us to drink all sorts of drink from all sorts of different fountains um that pollute us and we we live in a yeah live in a body with flesh and sinful tendencies and a broken world and yeah sometimes i think we we worry that if if we don't get immediate answers to our prayers and if we're not all happy and successful it discredits the gospel because we and so it makes us afraid that we can't promote things that don't promote the gospel because we think you know oh no what if jesus isn't alive but that isn't the gospel at all um that he makes everything better immediately and and how prideful of us to think that you know we can discredit the gospel just us like you know as important as we are to god we're still tiny 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 in the grand scheme of of the earth so i think we just have to in the universe right? i think we just have to let god be be god and realize that you know just because we're sitting in this space doesn't mean that he's not god and he can't he can't help us you know because the other side is if we rush to um the, the happy ending we just allow people to what's the word to bury things and they never really go anywhere and they there's danger of it causing more damage in, in the long run. So, yeah, man. Hmm. Or if it comes out in hypocrisy, doesn't it? Because we have to pretend that things are better than they are or that we're better than we are. Um, and that's that's something, again, I really valued from your book, even just the way you talked about how you tried to process the grief of losing your dad and the various mistakes and things that you fell into. Um, where do you find the capability to be honest with strangers, even though you, you know, are out there and saying, I'm a Christian rapper, I'm a man of faith. Um, and so you could feel that, you know, that unhealthy pressure that I've got to promote the Christian message and look like my life squeaky clean or not squeaky clean, but you know, it's all glitz and glamour and happiness. Mm. But so you seem to be able to resist that pressure 
really just by saying, I'm just going to be honest. So I suppose my question is, where do you find the resources and and strength to do that rather than tending towards the, the hypocritical presentation of a happy life when it's not all great? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I completely get you. And I don't think I'm the you know embodiment of complete honesty. Uh, I still feel like I'm on a journey when it comes to that. But ultimately, you know, as a Christian, I have pretended before and I still fall into um, pretending. And what's the reason for that? It's because the people I'm around seem perfect or are pretending as well. And so you feel like you need to do the same thing. But my Bible tells me that we're all imperfect. So someone's got to be lying somewhere. And just like pretense breeds more pretense, vulnerability breeds vulnerability. It's like if you walk into a room with my friends, for example, and someone asks how I am, and I say, oh, do you know what? It's actually pretty tough at the moment. That kind of sets the tone for the conversation and gives other people in the room the confidence to say actually to be fair it's tough for me as well you know it might not be tough for someone but if it was then they have the confidence to say that but if you walk into a room and everyone's like yeah life's great I think that sets the tone and everyone thinks their life's got to be great as well so I think it's just realizing that we're all imperfect we all have our dirt in different ways and if we lead in vulnerability and honesty it's probably going to encourage others to do the same um and and set the culture mm. and i just try and remind myself of that man that's really good yeah vulnerability is a lot more followable than we like than we, we, we often realize people want leaders that are vulnerable enough to be human enough that we can think oh there's something about you i want to follow yeah um and i mean one of the, one of your your songs that made a, has made a big impact on me is the, the song safe place uh, where you talk about the church and you talk about not just some of the hypocrisy in the church but some of the abuse that goes on in the church but the way that you, you land that is beautiful. There's cons, but there's pros too. The good, the bad, the ugly, that's the whole truth. But church isn't the place that I just go to. It's the family I belong to. I was getting excited. I thought you was going to rap along. <laughs> no one wants that. No one wants that. <laughs> I just felt myself... Um, being very disappointed in the church um, at specific moments in my life, the most recent of which was um, in terms of race relations and the conversation that was sparked off the back of George Floyd. And I think that as the church, I so often hear that, you know, we want the world um, to reflect the church rather than the other way around. But sometimes in these conversations where we can have real impact, we're last to the party. Um, and then I started speaking to friends about different ways in which the church has let them down and, and they've been abused and let down. And it was a mate that challenged me, actually. Um, she had left a church and said that since she left team and, and stopped serving and just kind of disappeared, no one really checked in on her. And I realised that I had been that person that has you know, seen someone leave and not checked up on them. Do you know what I mean? And I thought, actually... No, the church is the brand of Christ, yes, but it's made up of humans and we're all hypocrites and we're all imperfect. And yes, the church needs to change, but ultimately the way for that to happen is for as many people as possible, you know, myself included, to look in the mirror and think, how can I you know, be a good representation of Jesus? How can I be a good representation of the church? And so the first verse, I kind of look at the institution because 
it has done so much good, but also so much damage, and we can't get away from that. But then the second verse, the reason why I choose to land it at you know myself is because I can be part of the change that I want to see, and and we all can. And I think sometimes the word church gives us an excuse to not look at ourselves as human beings and individuals. Well, you mentioned just then about um, your disappointment and sadness that you felt how the church responded to um, the race relations surrounding George Floyd's murder. Um, do you mind talking a bit more about that and exactly what disappointed you with the way you saw churches respond? Yeah, sure. So kind of in my own church community, I think the news broke midweek. Um, and on the Sunday, uh, I was expecting them to pray into it highlight it um just talk about the work that we all need to do in this area but it felt like um well I didn't feel like they didn't um acknowledge it at all um and I was bitterly disappointed and then obviously it, it just kind of kept moving and turned into a huge thing and then everyone started acknowledging it um including churches and I guess my thought was why does the church have to wait for the world to think this is a big deal before we do why does this not break our hearts um why were we not moved um and i'm talking about my own community here um because i'm sure there were churches that did highlight it and i just really struggled because i get the fact that there's so many different issues in the world but you know when something's happening in um syria or when there's charities that are you know promoting all the stuff that, that they're super passionate about we're just super quick to, to highlight it, but it felt in this area, it was really slow. Um, I guess that's where my disappointment came. And not only that, because everyone makes mistakes and we can always do better, but it was just more the kind of sheep mentality of that. No, this is not what the bride of Christ is about. We're not meant to be following the world. When the world is outraged, we're not just meant to follow suit. We're meant, our hearts are meant to break first. Do you know what I mean? And we're meant to, the world are meant to look at us and think, Oh, look at what they're doing look at what they're talking about look at what they're passionate about and and be moved but it just feels like and this is culture at the moment whatever's trending on twitter you know is what we follow but actually we need to be thinking what is breaking god's heart right now and, and arrive at that before it trends you know that's a really important statement and um, we just kind of want to let that sit it's a big challenge on the church actually um the, the not just I mean your point there about not just following the world's important but also what does it look like for one for what Paul says that one when one member hurts we all hurt mm. because often if if the leadership team aren't affected or hurt and if our church is a majority white led um certainly most a lot of our churches are then they're not necessarily going to be hurt immediately by some of the things that are affecting people of color in our churches. And so therefore they don't reflect their people in the way that they pastor on a Sunday. So the need for church leaders and white, white led church leaders to, to learn what it, what does it look like for us to hurt when members of our church are hurting? Um, That's a, that's a hard, a hard kind of not obstacle but it's a hard one to work out particularly when we sometimes have created cultures of leadership where the pastors are quite remote from the people and they've delegated you know the the pastoring and the feeling of how the sheep are um to i don't know group leaders or midweek leaders or you know ministry leaders and 
that there's just challenges on the way that we structure perhaps our leadership so that church leaders, particularly if we've got a large church, church leaders can feel pretty remote um, to members of their church. They're the guy or the girl who preaches on a Sunday, but how much do we know them and then know us? And yeah, it's difficult. It's not. It's not easy. There are there are huge challenges, and I'm not a church leader, and so I can't imagine how difficult it is. So I always try and speak with with grace, but I think that you know the two words that come to mind is listening and leadership and listening because if you're in an area of the UK that is majority white it's probably going to be quite hard for you to get a a diverse um, leadership team from the top down um, really soon you're probably gonna have to work quite hard to get there but in the meantime you can listen to you know the people of color in your congregation and be empathetic and think about the things that they're going through because a lot of the conversations that have arisen over the last uh, 12 months, they're conversations that have probably been brought up by people in the congregation for years and years, but maybe they've just not been taken seriously enough, you know? So I think listening is a huge part of of the cultural um, shift that, that we can look to take place. And the other bit is, yeah, the way we lead, you know, I guess in the modern church, pastor by definition is maybe a bit misleading because if you're leading a church of a number of people, um, I don't know, maybe you're like a, a manager, you know, you're not actually pastoring or you don't get enough time to sit with people and spend time with people. So I think as, as leaders, you know, in amongst all the other duties that you must have, you probably know way more about this than I do. Um, so excuse me if I'm, I'm incorrect, but it's just fighting for space to you know, be face to face with people one on one, and and never losing sight of yeah, actually, pastor means to to steward, to shepherd, to to care for people. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and your other comment there about the um the the sadness that the church often doesn't get animated about things until the world is putting some pressure on it to get animated about those things. Uh, do you have any reflections on how we can change that? Because that, that's a, a really tragic statement, but it's something that I think many of us can relate to, thinking, I want to be in a, I want to be in the city of God, but so often I feel like I'm being influenced by the city of man, and the city of God is just following their lead all the time. Um, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, man. And it's going to sound like such a cop-out, because I'm a very like practical thinker, so I like practical responses. But I, I genuinely think the answer is the Holy Spirit and when there's a move of the spirit and when the spirit challenges and when the spirit puts something on our hearts before we let the world um what is the right word just before we let the world um take away the purity of that that thought and that feeling we have to act on it you know and i think the holy spirit is always challenging the church you know um on different issues and we just have have to listen even if the world isn't there yet i don't know what the future holds but i know who holds the future so i'm good to go had some highs and we had some lows my mother told me that you're with me and that's good to know i took it slow it's times and seasons and they shut the boat but hands are made for work. why don't we come to talk about um the title the subtitle of your book which is um toxic masculinity and um how you face the man within the man um, can you talk to us a bit about how, how you define and understand exactly what toxic masculinity is and how you saw it playing out um, in East London perhaps as you were growing up and how that then influenced you? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I'd kind of describe toxic masculinity as uh, a set of ideals that as men we can tell ourselves are really positive. But if we're not careful, um, they could become detrimental um, to us. So, you know, for example, being strong, you know, that's like a really manly um, thing and that bravado, like we love it. But if your mind and your body is telling you to maybe be vulnerable or share with someone how you're feeling and you're like, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm a man and I've got to be strong, then that could become really detrimental because you're holding all this stuff in and you're never really kind of dealing with it. You know, it's one of the reasons I think where the number one killer of, of men, you know, between 30 and 40 is, is suicide. And it's because you know, on the outside, you know, we're, we're so strong and we appear so put together, but on the inside, something very different is going on. And so I think if you don't deal with those emotions and handle them in the right way, it can become quite toxic or even, you know, strength, um, in, in relationships, you know, we've, we've seen, I read a story that, you know, whenever there's a major football tournament, then domestic violence kind of goes through the roof because, you know, guys are upset that their team lost or, or whatever. And it's like that strength becoming really, really toxic, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I just think it's looking at those ideals, like men are strong and, and stiff upper lip and all that kind of stuff and thinking about the fact that if we're not careful, there's definitely a chance it could become toxic. And I guess... In my life growing up on the estate, because we never really felt like home, we were first generation Brits. Um, there was a little bit of gang violence in the area. It was very dog eat dog, the culture. You didn't really want to become vulnerable because if you're vulnerable, then you might become a victim and no one wants to be a victim. And so you just always had to leave your house with, you know, that stiff upper lip kind of thing. And it was really toxic. Um, even if someone looked at you the wrong way, um, that might end up in a fight. And even that in of itself is just it's just so weird, man, um, to me. So the culture, yeah, it was just it was just crazy toxic. And I think a few things kind of played its part in terms of me specifically. So, you know, being in that environment, but also my family, and I alluded to this in the book of they weren't really great at communicating. I knew they loved me, but we never really sat around a table, we never um, spoke about our feelings and our emotions so the message I took from that was well, you just don't do that you just kind of get on with life even if it's difficult you know um, yeah I felt like my upbringing was a good upbringing but in terms of my manhood it was actually quite toxic mm. yeah I, I, you describe your dad you said he's a man of few words and if he said more than three or four words it was a case of verbal diarrhea <laughs> yeah yeah basically that was him and I think you always you talk about going to a gig with a friend of yours and his dad and your dad, and um, your dad said less than a sentence the entire night, but he was with one of his closest friends. So he was just a very quiet, reflective man. Um, yeah. But actually, as you, actually, I think you know you're incredibly just charitable and nuanced in the way that you you know understand your dad. You point out that for him it was about moving from Ghana, providing for his family, and working hard. So it's not as though emotions didn't matter. It's that they became second because they weren't that important. What's important is providing and succeeding in that sense, um, which is an important value as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I have different challenges to what he had because, you know, he had to move countries and, and work really hard. And thankfully, because of his hard work, I have it slightly easier um, in life when it comes to, to things like provision. Um, but I still feel like I am living in the effects of, you know, growing up with my dad because I still do some of the same things, even though I don't have some of the same challenges. And so 
I do wonder he didn't have to completely be the way he was. Obviously, you know, he tried to provide and all that kind of stuff, but he could have fought for space to communicate, look after his mental health. And um, hopefully I can I can do that. But yeah, I think whatever the situation we, we're in, however hard we have to work to provide, I, I still think there's areas in life where we can fight for that space to, to communicate and get things off our chest. And... and you walked over to my bed, sat down and then called me over. I thought I was about to get the belt or something, but you just sat me on your lap. You took my hand, put it in the air, and you said, son, never be lazy. Hands are made for working. You growing up on the estate, you mentioned in the book as well that you, age 11, you held a pistol, you held a handgun for the first time. Yeah, yeah, I was about um, yeah, 11 or 12, and my mate had a, my older friend had a gun on the estate, and he was just like, look at this crazy and then I just held it um and you know what's mad about that moment it just felt so normal but it wasn't until about five years later that I fought back to it randomly and I thought oh that's kind of crazy I was only 11 and that was so like normalized on the estate um but yeah for me I think because my parents were so strict and because they had made so many sacrifices I was actually quite scared of them and so even though I was around a lot of gang culture I just knew that I wasn't cut out for it also because I'm a bit of a wimp as well so I know that <laughs> not really where I want to go um but yeah it was 11 years old and very normal yeah and you say that I think there was a kind of a moment where you realized this is this is my life could have gone down that path you know you said you're a bit of a wimp so maybe it wouldn't have done but equally it could have if you'd have imbibed that kind of aspiration to get the approval of certain men in the estate um then it can head down that path and so you can see how quickly and easily it can uh, a life can take a completely different direction just from something as well seemingly incidental as a friend just showing you to showing you to hold something and you're going oh wow this is a feeling of validation or strength and power but that perhaps you could really have craved at that age yeah definitely man and I think that's why I have a big problem with the villainize. I don't know if this is a word villainization of, of young people um I'm a firm believer in punishment I'm a firm believer if, if you do the crime you have to do the time I'm also a firm believer in rehabilitation. And because I've been in that environment, I know how easy it is for a good kid to be presented with an opportunity um, that could alter the um, where their life goes. And I've seen so many good kids be influenced by people that don't care about them and um, promise them never going to get and that kind of stuff. And so I think when we look at, you know, a teenage criminal, and we just write them off without taking into consideration how they've got to that point. Um, I think it's a bit cowardly. I think we have to dig deeper, you know, and um, that's like the end point. We have to go to the beginning point and how did they end up in this situation and and think about that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's, it's difficult. But the problem is unless you get close to that environment, which, you know, a lot of government um, and people in positions of power don't get close enough you're not going to see all those little things that can happen all those good kings kids that take a wrong turn and they're influenced by all these different people and what their family setups like and how much trauma they've seen in life and all that you're not going to understand all that stuff because you're not getting close enough you know so yeah i think it's a real privilege and opportunity and i take pride in the fact that i've seen things that i can't ignore and so i have to fight for people that um like that young people mm. you know and and like you said it's a lot more complicated than sometimes the headlines like to to make out that often there's been this kind of 
idea that it's kids who grown up without a dad at home are the real you know most at risk here but actually I think you said that's not the case either um, and particularly describing your upbringing um, you had a, a very a present dad at home but could have gone down that path if you'd have wanted as well. Yeah 100% I think people's go to uh, family life, race, class but you know I do a lot of schools workshops I've done workshops in private school with you know silver spoon kids that have family set up at home you it looks like from the outside anyway but mum's always working or dad's always away working they're bored they've got all this money don't know what to do with it so they think mm, let me get involved with drugs and then they enjoy the thrill of that and then they're like, let me start selling drugs and it's like wait hold on you've got a great start in life and you're selling drugs that doesn't make sense to me but yeah I think it's deeper than just looking at class race um families set up on a surface level mm. and and yeah it's a, it's a massive issue and um, becoming more and more a problem you've seen in the book that it's, it's up over 70 percent uh, and there's over a thousand nice knife related hospital admissions in 2019 alone uh, and it's not just a london problem as you also point out um it's really quite worrying and, and terrifying for those who um, care about the next generation and care about the, the way that society is going. Um, I think one of the things you diagnose is the lack of purpose. Uh, is that one of the, you talk about that word quite a bit, is that one of the, the key key themes that you think is underlying a lot of this? Um, yeah. Or again, am I trying to split something that's complicated into just one <laughs> single word? Yeah, no, there's, there's a few key theme, themes, but like purpose is massive because if you wake up every day and you feel like, you're just a name on a register or you're just here to make up the numbers. You haven't really got anything to live for. You're just going to let the days go by. You've got no sense of direction. If a negative opportunity presents itself, you might think, well, why not? We've got nothing else to live for. But if you wake up every day and you know, God's got me here for a reason. I, my heart's beating, not by coincidence, but I've got something to give to the world, to society, to my community, to my environment. You wake up and you're on a mission, you know? And I think, um, that's a beautiful thing, but there's so many key factors, you know, the stats that you just mentioned with violent crime going up, that's coupled with the fact that over a thousand youth workers have lost their job in the last three or four years, or government funding in youth services, two thirds of it has just disappeared, you know, there's, there's so many wheels to try and turn, and I think the only way you're going to see kind of structural substantial change and i think this is the aim is to get all the cogs to turn at the same time so uh, youth funding and youth leaders and purpose and role models and you know strategic government policy and all that kind of stuff but the hardest thing is to get all the cogs to turn at the same time you just kind of get one cog to turn and then you've got to wait a while and then do the other one and then wait a while and do the and it's just what kind of slows down the process but i think to see like structural systemic change the goal is for everyone to get on the same page at the same time and that's what i keep praying for but until then we just try and do what time man and you talk in, in the book as well one of the words that came up quite a lot was this idea of conditioning um, that the, the, which can ties into this sense of purpose as well. That people are conditioned. We're all conditioned in some sense, um, well, in a lot of senses, by our upbringing, our culture. But there is that sense of conditioning of these kids through the narrative that they're fed or the life expectation journey that they've got. And they need like champions in their lives, like yourself or like for you, Miss Miss Arninson, who was your English teacher, who first kind of instilled in you this sense that you perhaps had a destiny and a and a and a gift to offer the world. Um, 
and and coming back to this idea of toxic masculinity as well um, we can be conditioned by this this concept of masculinity as strength and dominance and power as a way of trying to overcome our perhaps insecurity and fear that's a result of maybe this human condition that you said that's universally hard and horrible um but what's how would you advocate for and how would you um pitch an alternative vision of masculinity to these kids and to anyone listening what's a, a different vision of masculinity man what a massive question <laughs> uh, cool obviously i wrote a book about it so that's my own fault <laughs> <laughs> um i think the bravest thing to do as men and women is to try and be completely honest um whenever we can with the people around us and i think that's loaded because maybe you haven't got people around you that you feel you trust or you're brave enough to be honest with i think if we can find two or three people in our lives to be our truest selves with it will just do wonders for us with me i've got um, a very close friend with nick another one called jordan and my wife as well that i feel you know these are the people that i'm comfortable with sharing my truest self with and they can help me through whatever I'm going through as long as I'm honest and I'm vulnerable and foundationally I have the hope of Jesus you know and his strength and access to, to all the things that he brings but yeah going forward the idea of masculinity I think a lot of you know masculinity that, that we see now and we've seen for years is us just not being truly honest with how we're feeling or, or what we're going through and feeling the pressure to provide and be physically mentally emotionally strong and that kind of stuff and i think yeah going forward i'd love to see us just have two or three people we can be honest with just because i know how beneficial that's been to me and i think it can be beneficial to others as well mm. is that a good answer really? no, I, thought, I thought that was a really good answer yeah top top marks you can tell you've written a book about it good. I, I really want to stick with this idea of masculinity because i know when you in the in the book at least when i was reading it and you outlined toxic masculinity um the thought occurred to me that in many respects that's a vision of masculinity that's quite a pre-christian masculinity um the, the kind of classical greek and roman world that kind of held up these stoical ideas of just strength and vert and strength and power and dominance and does that affect how you talk about jesus so that you present him as a, as a tough guy but as a different vision of masculinity i think as christians it's quite tough because grace uh, is such a huge part of you know the christian faith and i think that this society they view christianity as like it's a bit soft <laughs> do you know what i mean which i like and i don't like because i'm like i love that you know we're seen as people that love and, and have grace and humility but i almost wish that people knew that you know we could get mean as well and passionate and we really care because i think it's important um but i just i present jesus the way i see him man like a guy that wept when something really broke his heart and, and he felt like amazing empathy but also a guy that flips tables when he needed to um teach a lesson and um spread a message um so yeah i think i try not to view myself as someone that's like that plays a super big part in how you know jesus comes across and christianity comes across i try and just 
live an honest life, an authentic life. And I think that maybe hopefully for some people that might be attractive. But I think all you have to do is read to see that there's Jesus is multifaceted and he's not a soft touch just because he has empathy and he's not a mean God just because he flips tables, you know. Um, I think it's tough because mm. I always say, you know, some stuff in, in TV shows and like, you know, you used to watch Family Guy and they take the mick out of Christianity. I'm like, well, Family Guy's a bit different because they're, yeah, a bit rogue. But I always felt that with other faiths, people always kind of tread carefully. Yeah, why do you reckon that is? I've often wondered about that. Like, people get, people are very scared and very respectful of, of offend, scared of offending and respectful towards other faiths. But when it comes to Christianity, there's a different attitude. Have you got any thoughts on why you think that might be? So I think we live in a Christian country. So maybe if you feel like you live in a Christian country and you've got some loose connection to Christianity, you have the right to not take it as seriously and make fun of it or whatever. But yeah, I don't know, to be honest. And I love it. I think when you think of Christians, you just think love. You know what I mean? And um, maybe that's why people think they can take the make a little bit. Yeah, but perhaps um, if we're talking about how do you redeem a culture of masculinity that tends towards aggression and uh, I think actually one thing you said about when boys experience mental health problems, they're often because they don't externalise it through honest communication, they externalise it through aggression, which perhaps creates more of the problem that we're trying to deal with. But So when we're trying to engage with boys from that world and that culture, there is a need, isn't there, for... For like a lot, a lot of what you just said there about who Jesus is in the Gospels as a fully human man, but someone who stands up to oppression and you know is, is a man who's really passionate about things. I remember Tom Head from East End talk. He, he always pic- pictures Jesus in his um, original setting just by calling him a labourer. I think something as simple as that. I remember listening to Le- Lecrae talk about Jesus as a rebel. Obviously, the opening track of one of his albums and um talking about jesus being a, a tough guy um just trying to change that image of jesus so that perhaps some of those boys or young men will give jesus an audience because it seems that people reject him without really knowing anything about him have you found that to be true as well yeah definitely man especially with people that um so i'm doing like loads more stuff outside of the halls of the church um just like mainstream telly and just different bits and bobs and I always find that, you know, I walk in, people don't really know who I am, but they obviously they've done their Googles and they see like Christian rapper or good gospel guy, whatever. So they're always like, oh yeah, tell me a bit about that. What's that about? It's Christian stuff and it's Jesus stuff. And, that. and I start talking about it and you just realise that all the kind of kumbayas and stuff that's already in their head just vanishes and they're like, oh, I didn't actually notice. This is remarkably cool or normal is not as weird as I thought it was and some of it they still need to work to get their head around but I think um the gap is conversation and communicating with people who aren't like us and who don't come to church and just authentically being ourselves you know my faith is foundational to who I am so when I'm talking to someone about it it's not like oh my gosh I've got to talk about Jesus now I'm so nervous it's like yeah I'll talk about West Ham and how my club's doing I'll talk about church because I go to church and it's just very normal and I think people just accept I think would be surprised by how accepting and how normal people find it when we're just ourselves and we just talk about our lives and, and the stuff that we're involved in so yeah and yeah certainly in the again I keep coming back to the book but in the book you do that so well you just you come across so normal but you're, at the same time you're you're not 
apologetic in any in any sense. You talk about yourself as a man of faith, which I thought was just a, a helpful expression, perhaps instead of always calling yourself a Christian um, in the secular world, people to understand exactly what that is, and it's quite a, an easy uh, entry thing to understand and go, a man of faith, oh, I get that, um, rather than just a moralising Christian. Um, but we'll tell, talk to us about what it's like in um, in the media world that you seem to be getting more and more access to and uh, broadcasting and things like that. How, how have you found it? Yeah, it's cool, man. I like it. I'm passionate about you know stuff like football, so I love that I'm doing all the football stuff, and I just like communicating. I think someone gave me a word. A couple of people actually gave me the same word over the last few years, where it's not necessarily about like what I'm qualified to do or like a specific job role, like rapper or broadcaster or whatever. It's more about what I'm carrying and who I am in Jesus and being fluid in whatever room whatever circle and just kind of be who God's called me to be and and I'm doing my job but it's fine and I think the thing I've realized is that no matter who I talk to everyone worships something and so it just makes it less weird or overwhelming me being there because it's like oh my gosh you go to church you lift your hands in the air and 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 praise Jesus that's so weird and then I'll just I'll be at West Ham the other day and I'm like well how's it different to the out on the pitch and us sticking our arms in the air and singing I'm forever blowing bubbles you know and shouting off the players and that kind of stuff and then just people get it so yeah I love the conversations that I'm having slightly uncomfortable slightly nerve-wracking but exactly where I need to be I think uh, it just reminds me of this idea that we're supposed to be priests aren't we priests who embody Jesus uh, to the world and you know whatever labels we might wear for ourselves I'm a rapper or I'm a teacher uh, or a construction worker actually we're, we're priests who first and foremost we're here to represent God's love for people and to uh, point people to Jesus and to communicate the gospel wherever we can um, Isaac it's such a privilege spending some time with you and, and talking with you um, as we're kind of going to draw things to a close a little bit what are some some things on your heart or mind that you'd love to just I don't know it's in your mind right now things you'd just like to share with us yeah sure um, I don't know whether it's because I'm married or family man or whatever, but I just think that this world is quite overwhelming and challenging at the moment, but God has blessed us with, you know, good friends and, and family. And I think to make the most of those relationships, um, I'd hate for anyone to think that they're truly alone because you're not. Um, God's with you. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. But also... Um, Hopefully, if you've got family or friends around, just utilize those relationships and try and be vulnerable um, as much as possible because we're not meant to do life alone. And that's why God's put people around us. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Cheers, brother. Good chatting to you. And hopefully see you soon when I'm next down that, that way of the world. <laughs>